purpose of this 16 lecture course is to enable you to gain a manager's perspective of both accounting and finance. You'll learn how to read financial statements and understand their limitations. Hopefully you'll gain some working vocabulary. You'll learn how companies use performance measures to, to control their organizations. You'll also learn some techniques for making financial decisions. And finally, we'll learn how to use financial data to draw up both strategic and tactical options for the firm. In this lecture, we'll be dealing principally with the balance sheet and more specifically with the asset side of the balance sheet. That is, the list of the assets that the company owns. A balance sheet is simply a statement of condition and is often called that. And it's a, literally a snapshot at one point in time of what the company happened to look like at that instant. And that creates the first problem because what do we want to look like when we have our picture taken? Well, you know, the men will check their tie, and the women will check their lipstick, and you try to look as good as possible. The trouble is that companies don't always look as good as possible, so they have to pick the right time to have their picture taken. For example, if you were Macy's department store, and you decided to close your books at the end of December 31, which is the way most companies do, you'd run into a number of problems. First of all, you'd have your independent auditors wandering around the store trying to count inventory at a time when it's at a peak and when there's a mob of people in hopefully shopping for Christmas gifts. It would cost not only a lot of time, but a lot of money to keep to take this inventory and further, you'd look as if you were stuck with inventory you weren't able to sell. That's not typically what Macy's looks like. Well, another alternative would be to close the books on January 31st. The trouble with this is it's just about this time that we send the bills out to everyone who charged merchandise during the Christmas rush. And if anybody looked at our books at that point, it would appear that nobody was paying us or that it was taking us forever to collect. And that further, uh, we just weren't very good at managing our accounts receivable. We'll get back to what they are in a few minutes. In addition, the auditors would charge us a lot of money to confirm that those accounts receivable were real. That is, that people really owed us the money. And so that would be expensive. Well, how about February 28? Well, the trouble with February 28 is sometimes it's February 29. And I understand most of you will be around to, to worry about it in the year 2000, that we have to make an additional adjustment. I don't know whether we're going to have an extra day or one less day in February, but it certainly will be different. So February 28 or 29 or 30 or whatever it is isn't too good either. We could try March 31st, but frankly that's no better because Easter has a habit of moving around. And as a result, some years we would have a lot of Easter merchandise, spring merchandise, and in other years we wouldn't have any. And so the year-to-year -year comparisons would get kind of complicated. Turns out there isn't a good time, so most department stores either use the end of January or the end of February. The point is that the balance sheet is distorted, or at least carries a certain amount of prejudice based upon the date that was chosen. Now let's get down to what a balance sheet actually is. It's a statement of what the company owns that it uses in its business and where the money came from to pay for those assets, the things the company owns. In this session, we'll be dealing principally with the asset side of the balance sheet. But first, let's take a look at the balance sheet. The graphic that you see now gives you the balance sheet equation. That is, that the total assets have to equal debt plus equity. That is, everything we own had to be paid for with either borrowed money or with money put up by the shareholders, which we call equity or net worth. Now, we'll be referring regularly during this session to the financial statements of the XYZ Corporation, which you will find as Appendix A in your outline.
I suggest that you keep it in front of you because we'll be referring back and forth to those numbers during the talk. Now, let's take a look at the statement of condition or the consolidated balance sheet of XYZ. You'll notice it's as of December 31st of a particular year, a particular point in time. It's important to note that because when we turn to the income statement, we'll find that it covers a period of time. We don't earn income on December 31st. We earn it throughout the year, and therefore it has to cover a period of time. Looking at the balance sheet again, you'll notice that the asset side, that the total assets of the business at the end of 1995 were $135 million. And as a quick check to make sure that the balance sheet equation indeed balances, we'll take a look at the total liabilities on the right-hand side for 1995, and we find that there are some $67 million. That is, the firm had borrowed $67 million from various sources of borrowing. And finally, that the total equity was some $68 million, and if the arithmetic is right, the total assets, $135 million, are equal to debt plus equity, 67 plus 68. Now, what happens if they're not? This doesn't bother accountants too much because they're very good at addition. Some people say that it's just as well they're not rabbits and can't multiply. But the point is that they can make an adjustment that will keep the balance sheet balanced. If an asset is missing, suppose someone stole a dollar out of the assets, all losses are taken by the shareholders, so we simply adjust the equity item down a dollar, and the balance sheet remains balanced because the shareholders have just lost a dollar. If we discover we have a dollar more in, in assets than we thought we did, that belongs to the shareholders too. So we balance the sheet by plugging again at the equity account, adding a dollar to it. So the balance sheet can always be balanced. We just change the equity account to make it balance. The balance sheet, therefore, lists both assets and debt and equity. And in this session, as I suggested, we're going to be looking principally at assets. Assets are things that the company owns that it plans to use in the business and that have value. The value has to be expressed in dollars. We can't list that we have three pencils, two cars, six steel mills, and 105 widgets in inventory. We have to put a dollar value on it, and that probably generates the first and biggest problem the accountants have with the balance sheet, and that is how to value the assets. We could value them at what they cost us in the first place. Another possibility is to value them at what they're worth today. In periods of inflation, that might be considerably more than what we paid for them in the first place. Another possibility is to value them at market. Now, if someone was willing to pay us more than they're worth, uh, we could probably take them up on it, and maybe we owe it to our shareholders to tell them that we could indeed sell these assets for a lot more than we're carrying them on the books for. Accountants are conservative. Uh, some people say they're historians. The proof is that they always walk backwards so they, because they'd rather see where they've been than where they're going. But basically, accountants tell you what happened, what not, not what's going to happen. And so accountants prefer historical cost. There are some good arguments for it. The principal one is that at least we know what that number was. We can argue about what we can sell something for because an offer isn't real until somebody actually puts up the money. But at least we know what we paid for the asset. But it does cause some special problems. For example, suppose that one of our assets were a timber company or trees. We grow trees. And we hire somebody to plant a seedling in the ground, and it costs 25 cents to plant that seedling. Our historian accountant can tell us immediately that seedling is worth 25 cents. When he or she comes back the next year, the tree is now this tall. 
and the accountant will still insist it's worth 25 cents because that's its historic cost. A year later, it's this tall, and guess what? The accountant still thinks it's worth 25 cents because that's what it costs. In other words, accountants refuse to see, as a part of their conservatism, any increase in value, even if it grows before their very eyes. There are additional problems in, in valuation. Uh, probably the best example I can think of is in oil. If we were really lucky and we hired someone truly lucky to go out in the desert and put their finger in the sand and oil squirts up in their eye, that's good results. We hire a geologist and that geologist tells us, you know, there's a billion barrels of oil down there. Hey, that's great. And $18 a barrel, I think, is the going price right now. That's $18 billion barrel dollars worth of oil. The accountant would say it's worth zero. After all, it didn't cost us anything to find it. We were lucky. Even if it did cost us something to find it, because we didn't know for certain that we were going to find anything when we went out in the desert, the only conservative thing to do was to write off all the research and exploration expenses on the assumption that there'd be no success. And therefore, the oil is worth nothing. Now, accountants are also able to talk out of both sides of their mouth, because if we sold that oil to another company for $5 billion, and that company had exactly the same CPA that we had, his independent auditor would say it was for, worth $5 billion because that's what he paid for it. That's his historic cost. So the same auditor that said it was worth zero a minute ago now claims it's worth $5 billion. Well, there are other reasons to worry about a whale. It's fugitive. That is, it moves around under the ground when the earth shifts. So maybe we're not so sure we're going to get that oil anyway. So zero might be the best value for it. It's even worse if you happen to have a neighbor who's not very pleasant who puts a, a straw down at an angle and sucks it all out from under you. Or and sometimes he doesn't have to drill at an angle. If the oil bubble extends over under his property, he just drills down directly and sucks it out faster than you can. Now, in Texas, they have laws about that. You kill the people who do this. No, actually, they limit the number of days of pumping that you're allowed to do so that everybody gets a fair share. Further, as you begin to draw the oil out of the ground, you suck a vacuum down there, and it gets harder and harder to get the last oil out. Now, if the price of oil was high enough, we might resort to some heroic measure. We could uh, put salt water down in the ground to replace the oil that we've taken out. And since oil floats on water, this would mean the oil would float up to the surface. That's a good idea. But of course, we'd have to pump salt water over there. Or we could get really fancy and pump natural gas and oxygen down there and burn them. And the heat would make the oil less viscous, so it would flow up easier. It would also squeeze the oil out of the rocks it's trapped in. So we could recover a lot more oil if we expend the money to do it. Now, clearly, the only time it's worth expending that money is if the price of oil is high enough. And you see, we won't get around to this for perhaps 20 years. So how do we know the value of that reserve down in the ground until we know what the price is 20 years from now? An economist's way of saying the same thing is the value of the reserve depends on the future price of oil, which we don't know. And so if you want to be conservative, say it's worth nothing. Unless you paid more than nothing for it, then you can claim it's whatever you paid for. So valuation is a special problem for accountants, and we'll hit it again when we begin to talk about inventories. Now, why do companies buy assets? After all, they take cash, and they go out, and they buy things, and they pay for them. 
Their intent is to generate more cash by using those assets than they put up to buy the assets in the first place. If we buy a, a piece of equipment, we expect to make more widgets or some product from it and sell those widgets for more cash than the machine cost us in the first place. If we buy raw material, we intend to turn it into product that we can sell for more than the cost of the raw material. So the whole game is that every time we spend cash to buy assets, we're going to try to convert those assets back into cash and in the process, more cash than we did generated or had to spend in the first place. So we're turning cash into cash, and we're interested in liquidity, how fast cash will become cash, or how fast an asset will become cash. And for that reason, the assets on the balance sheet are always listed in the order of liquidity. That is, how soon will they become cash? Well, with that in mind, clearly the most liquid asset a company owns is cash. The trouble is that cash is of no great use. It doesn't earn anything. So often, instead of keeping it in cash, we'll put it in marketable securities so we can earn a little bit of interest while we're waiting. Well, if cash doesn't earn anything, why have it? Well, I guess one argument is that most of you would prefer to be paid in cash rather than in widgets. We're not a barter economy. When, when your payroll comes due at the end of the week, we expect to get money to buy whatever food or, or pay rent or whatever else we have to do with it. In addition, our vendors, our suppliers, expect to be paid in cash. And finally, if we're Macy's department store and I walk in with a $20 bill and buy a $5 item, I expect that there'll be enough cash in the till to make change for the $20 bill. So we need cash to make change. Then the three principal uses of cash are to, to meet payrolls, to pay vendors, and to make change. Companies try very hard to minimize the amount of cash on hand because it is not really an earning asset as such. For example, if different divisions of the company are collecting cash, they actually transfer the funds electronically from the local banks in order to centralize the cash as quickly as possible and put it to work. The next most liquid asset on the balance sheet are accounts receivable. Accounts receivable are monies owed to us by customers who have purchased goods or services and have not yet paid for them accounts receivable, monies owed to us by our customers. Now, there are a couple worries about accounts receivable. Well, first of all, will we ever collect them? And if we do collect them, when are we going to collect them? And those two things are related, because the longer it takes for us to collect a receivable, the less likely we'll ever collect it. The customer could die, could go bankrupt, could take off to, to Cuba or something. And so as a result, we have to worry about how old the receivables are, how much they have aged. In addition, we probably set up reserves for bad debt. That is, a reserve against receivables for the portion that we expect that we will not collect. That can be a specific reserve. We know we have a particular customer there whom we're worried about. Or it simply can be a statistical thing that says, on average, we don't collect 3% of all the receivables we ever generate for one reason or another. We also know that customers look for every excuse to pay as late as possible because money is worth money and, and they'd like to pay us later rather than sooner. The reserve is normally buried in the footnotes. You can find it if you look for it. And the net figure is reported on the balance sheet. That, that is, they tell us how much we do expect to collect. Now, in addition to knowing how many dollars worth of receivables we have on the books, we can also calculate, and your slide will show you this, how long it takes to collect a receivable. Basically, the formula is that the days of receivables, the days of accounts receivable, are simply the accounts receivable on the books at the end of the year 
divided by the sales that we made during that year times 360 days. Incidentally, accountants like 360-day years because that gives them 12 30-day months. Now notice what we've really done. What we've said is that if we take accounts receivable and divide it by sales, that's the proportion of this year's sales that have not yet been collected, the percentage that are still in the books uncollected at the end of the year. And that percentage of 360 is the number of days of receivables that are on the books. Let's see what XYZ's position was at the end of 1995. They had $10 million of accounts receivable in the books, and their sales from the income statement were, for the year, $100 million. In other words, they had not collected 10% of what they had sold, 10% of a year's worth of sales, or 10% of 360 days. Or in other words, the firm had not yet collected 36 days of its receivables. On average, it's taking 36 days to collect the monies owed to it by its customers. Now, there are ways to encourage the customer to pay faster. We'll talk about that a little later in the second session. Basically, it's by offering them discounts to pay promptly. The next most liquid asset that we have to deal with on the balance sheet are inventories. Inventories are the things that a company owns that it plans to sell. Ordinarily, that would mean it's, it's regular products, but it also could be something that they've taken and have been using and they've decided they don't need it anymore. Like, suppose we have automobiles in our fleet and we don't need one of the cars. If that car goes up for sale, it's an item of inventory during the time when it's up for sale. But most of the inventory that we deal with consists of the things that we plan to sell. And it takes three forms, each more liquid than the previous one. The first is raw material which then goes through what we call work in process, that is, it goes through the plant and gets converted, converted into a final product. And when it becomes a final product, we call it a finished goods inventory. Clearly, the finished goods inventory is the most liquid because it's ready to sell. Work in process is the next most liquid because it's on the way to becoming a finished good. And raw material is the least liquid because we haven't yet done anything to it that makes it saleable. Some firms will actually list all three forms of, of inventory separately. Even if they don't put it on their balance sheet, again, you'll find it buried in the footnotes. Our interest then is to how to value inventories. This is not an easy problem because if you look at a widget that's half made, how do you know it's 50% complete? What we know is we took raw material and we added some labor to it, but we don't quite know how much labor. So estimating the value of raw materials is kind of a tough problem. But inventory valuation is even more difficult in a period of inflation. Basically, if, if we have inflation, we know that the value of things generally goes up. It doesn't mean that dollars have more purchasing power, but we can sell things for a higher price because prices have gone up. Well, then we run into the problem of if we acquire inventory for sale over a period of time and then sell some of it, which inventory are we selling? The most recently acquired inventory, which is expensive, or the old inventory that we bought 10 years ago when prices were cheaper? Well, there are a number of ways to account for this. One is called the LIFO system. That is, the last in is the first out. It's like having a party at your house. Everybody comes in and throws their coat on the bed, and you hope that the last person who came is the first one to leave because they can take their coat off the top of the pile. Think of the problem if the first person wants to leave and they have to pull it out from underneath. So on a LIFO system, we cost out all the inventory that we sell as the most recently purchased. 
which means it's the most expensive inventory. And I think you can see that would allow us to report the lowest profits because we're charging against our sales the most expensive inventory we have. Alternatively, we could use a FIFO system, first in, first out, in which case we would charge out when we make a sale our oldest inventory price, the lowest price, and report huge profits. Well, I come from an area where Ben Franklin is a national hero, and he tells us that minimizing taxes is our patriotic duty. After all, the tax collector will simply squander the money if he gets his hands on it. So we probably ought to run a system that minimizes taxes, and LIFO will do that because, you see, if we charge out the most expensive in inventory, the, the last in, we'll report the lowest profits, and the tax collector will get a, a smaller share than he would if we used the FIFO system, where we charged out cheap inventory and reported big profits. The trouble with this is, if you're an executive and you happen to be on a bonus system, do you really want to tell your shareholders you had a bad year and didn't have much in the way of profits? Well, we have the answer for this. Let's keep two sets of books, perfectly legal. We'll tell the tax collector that we're using a LIFO system on inventory, and we're selling expensive inventory and not making much profit. And let's tell the shareholders that we're on a FIFO system, and we're selling cheap inventory and making huge profits, and they therefore deserve very big bonuses for the year. Well, a good American company operating nationwide has to keep at least 52 sets of books anyway, one for every state that it operates in, unless the state doesn't have any income taxes, one for the federal government for its tax purposes, and one for financial reporting, where we're going to use a FIFO system to report big profits. So understand that companies do keep more than one set of books. Incidentally, if you want to know how to know that, look over on the other side of the balance sheet, which we'll get to in the next session and discover whether there's a deferred tax item over there. If there is, it means they're keeping more than one set of books. I'll explain to you later how this comes off. So, okay, inventory valuations are complicated because we have to decide how to value the inventory that we're selling. Matching cost to revenues is one of the big problems that all accountants face. Because, you see, very often we incur cost in one year and generate revenues by selling the item in a, in a, in a future year. The result is that we have to do the matching to figure out whether we made a profit. Now again, we're not only interested in how much inventory we have on hand, but how many days. How long is it taking us to get rid of this stuff? Because some inventories have a time value attached to them, like a consultant to a pharmaceutical firm. All of the materials they sell, the pharmaceuticals are dated. And if it goes stale, you throw it away. Perhaps an even closer to home example is, is the inventory of dresses in a department store at Macy's. At the end of a season, what's a woman's dress worth? Well, an accountant would tell you probably zero. It gets called a rag at that point because it can't be sold. It's out of style. Or at best, it has to be sold at a discount. Well, given this problem, we have to know how long the inventory is lying around in order to get an idea of how stale it is. And the formula that we use is on, on the screen now parallels the formula that we use for days of receivables. Basically, what we say is that days of inventory are equal to the inventory at the, on hand at the end of the year divided by the cost of goods sold. And the reason we use cost of goods sold rather than sales are that inventories are valued at cost. And so we want to compare it to the cost of the materials that are being shipped out the door. And you'll find the cost of goods sold is the second line on XYZ's income statement. What percentage of the cost of goods sold is still lying around in inventory at the end of the year. Well, let's take a look at, at XYZ for the year 1995. 
the inventories on hand at the end of the year were $6 million. And if we go to the income statement, we find that the cost of goods sold to generate $100 million worth of sales was some $60 million in 1995. In other words, 10% of all the inventory that we shipped out the door that year are still lying around as inventory at the end of the year. 10% of the cost of goods sold is sitting there. 10% of the cost of goods sold for a year, or another way of saying that is 10% of a year of 360 days. So again, we find that the days of inventory on hand for XYZ is also 36 days. Now, is that good or bad? Well, now you'll learn the appropriate answer to all financial questions, and that is, it depends. The answer to every financial question is always, it depends. And if you want to look good in, a, in, a, in front of a prof, always tell them that. Why does it depend? Well, let's suppose inventories are up over last year. More, we have more days on hand than last year. Last year, let's suppose we only had 20 days of inventory. Well, at first glance, we could say that's bad. After all, it may mean we did a bad sales forecast overproduced, and now we're stuck with a lot of stuff that's, that's going to become rags at the end of the season. That's one possibility. Of course, another possibility is that we were anticipating a price increase on the part of our vendors, and in order to beat that price increase, we bought a lot of extra raw material and we're carrying it in inventory, and as a result, we're going to have low-cost inventory to sell instead of the new higher-priced inventory. That would be good. Another possibility is that we were afraid the vendor was going to take a strike and we wouldn't be able to get deliveries. And so to avoid stockouts, we boosted up our inventories ahead of, of the possible strike. So you see, the answer to whether we have more or less days and whether that's good or bad is it depends on the situation. And what you're really looking for is an explanation. Now, you notice I compared, at least rhetorically, this year's inventory with last year's. That's an important part of analyzing financial data, and we'll be doing that again and again. This year's data by itself doesn't tell us much. What we have to do is compare this year to previous years. And it's probably a good idea to compare this year's data to our competitors, because that will give us a feel for whether the number is appropriate or inappropriate. Numbers by themselves mean nothing until you bring a set of expectations to them and a set of questions. Why are they different? The answers to those questions help give the numbers meaning. The next most liquid asset on the balance sheet, and it turns out that XYZ has some of them, I labeled other current assets. These are assets such as prepaid expenses. It may be possible that we paid for something in advance. Perhaps we paid a month's rent in advance for a new office that we're opening. That's an asset. The, the ability to use that office now rent-free because we've already paid for it is worth something. So we would put that on the books as another asset. And I've introduced still a new word, current. A current asset and all the assets we've discussed so far, cash, receivables, inventories, prepaid expenses, are current assets. These are assets that we expect to become cash, to become fully liquid within the next accounting period, that is, within one year. If we expect an asset to become a li liquid, become dollars, within one year, we label it a current asset. All other assets are called fixed assets, and ultimately we expect them to become cash too, expect, except we think it'll take more than a year. And so now we turn to the, the subject of fixed assets. A fixed asset is a non-current asset. 
Typically, it's either plant and equipment or other kinds of long-term investments that the company makes, again, with the intent of generating more cash than they paid for the asset in the first place. The typical fixed asset for most businesses is plant and equipment. If we buy plant and equipment, though, we know that sooner or later it will either wear out or the process for manufacturing will become obsolete or the product that it was meant to produce will become obsolete. So sooner or later, the plant and equipment will also become worthless. And therefore, to be conservative, it's perfectly appropriate that we should write down the value of that plant and equipment over the expected life, the useful life, of the equipment. And of course, that creates still another problem. And that is, how do we know how long it's going to be useful? And what formula should we use for writing it down? Now, the general formula for depreciation charge is on your screen. That is, we simply look at what the historical cost of the asset was. We subtract from that the salvage that we think we can claim at the end of the period. If we can scrap the machine, maybe we can sell it for scrap metal. So we get a little bit of money back. Sometimes it still has some useful life. Maybe it was an automobile that's now three years old, but we like to drive new cars. So we sell it. It still has some worth. And so its salvage value is whatever the market will bear at that point. And we divide that difference that we have to recover, the difference between historic cost and salvage, by the number of years of, of useful life that we estimate the product will have. And each year, we charge off that much depreciation as an expense which helps to reduce our reported profits and allows us to pay less to the tax collector. Ben Franklin would be proud of us. The trouble with this formula is that it, we call this straight line depreciation. We charge off the same amount each year. Probably your experience has been that, that stuff doesn't depreciate that way. If you buy a new car, does the value of the car drop a lot or a little the first year? The answer is clearly a lot. Anybody who tries to sell a one-year-old car discovers that to their dismay. It drops a little bit less the next year, but still a pretty substantial amount. And the third year, a little less. We could approximate that by using a system called accelerated depreciation. We'll tell the tax collector that we expect that it loses a lot of value in the first year. It loses a little less value in the next year. And then each following year, it reduces, will reduce the depreciation charge and charge less and less depreciation. Now, what's the advantage of this? Well, what it means is we get to charge a lot of depreciation in the early years, which means we pay less taxes in the early years. However, it also means we'll pay more taxes in the later years because having charged off a lot of the depreciation, we don't have too much left in year five or six to charge off. But the result is a tax situation where we pay less taxes now and more taxes later. Ben Franklin would be very pleased with that idea because when would you rather pay the tax collector? Now or 10 years from now? I know the answer is never, but 20 years from now is closer to never than five years is, and it's certainly closer than one year. However, this creates problems too because if we use accelerated depreciation and take a lot of write-offs this year and next year, what does that do to our profits? It knocks them down, and what's that do to your bonus as a manager? Well, I think it should be clear that we don't want to tell our shareholders that we're using accelerated depreciation. We only want to tell the tax collector. So I have an idea. Let's keep two sets of books. Let's tell the tax collector that we use accelerated depreciation, and that's why we're not reporting much earnings in these early years. And let's tell our shareholders that we use straight-line depreciation. That's why we can report fantastic earnings this year, and therefore are entitled to the bonus that we really think we're worth.
and most organizations do things of this sort. How do you know they're doing it? Well, the first paragraph of notes, which of course few people ever read in the accounting statement, right behind all these financial statements, tells you what their financial reporting policies are. And generally they'll tell you what they use for financial purposes and what they use for tax purposes. The other giveaway, again, is to go over to the other side of the balance sheet. And remember, we're getting ahead of ourselves now. We'll talk about that in the next session and see if there's a deferred tax item because you see what we've done by accelerating depreciation is to put off taxes now at the expense of increasing them later. We have deferred taxes. And when you see a deferred tax item on the books, it means that management has been clever enough to keep at least two sets of books to boost their bonuses and make you shareholders happy and to decrease our present tax bill and make Ben Franklin happy. Plant and equipment has some other problems that, that are a little bit beyond the scope of, of this discussion, but I think you can see that we have to worry about whether the plant is economically scaled, that is, whether it's competitive. Somebody else may have built a plant that's bigger and more efficient than ours, and it, so it may be that we're going to have to change our estimate of the useful life of the plant. Incidentally, accountants will let us do that. Anything that decreases the value of an asset, they won't argue about. They're willing to, to write down an asset, they're just not willing to write it up. And so we should really redefine the way accountants value assets. They value them at historic cost or market, whichever is less. Never more, but they're perfectly willing to take it down in value. So if you want to write off some plant equipment, they'll permit you to do that. But you can't suddenly discover it's worth more and write it up. Now the firm has other assets too. In fact, I labeled them in the XYZ balance sheet, other fixed assets. These include a lot of things. They include intellectual property like patents and copyrights. They include investments in other businesses. We may own shares in IBM as an additional investment, a long-term investment. And because it's a long-term investment, we label it a fixed asset. If the same investment were made in IBM shares in the hopes of making a quick profit, that is, just put some money to work for a short time, we call it a current asset because we plan to convert it back to cash in a year. So the same asset could either be current or fixed, depending on what our intentions were in making the investment. Intellectual property also has a limited life. Patents typically have a 17-year life. Copyrights are usually the life of the author plus 50 years at this point. That sounds like a long time, but you see, if we buy a copyright from someone else that already has some aging on it, it may not have that many years left to run. And so we have to write off the historical cost of that asset to us over the expected life of the asset. So if we buy a copyright that's already been around for 46 years and we figure it only has four more years to go, but we pay a million dollars for it, then we're going to have to write off, we call it amortization, $250,000 worth of that, that copyright every year for the next four years so that it's down to its true value of zero at the end of year four. That's being conservative. One might even argue that we should accelerate the amortization because, after all, it, the, the book might go out of print or become unpopular. And, of course, the advantage of that is we could tell the tax collector we're writing it off quicker and, therefore, we should pay less taxes in these early years. When we get to the income statement, we'll talk about all sorts of ways that we can, can put it to the, the tax collector. Well, then, assets such as copyrights and patents have limited life, and they indeed have to be written off during the life of the asset. 
Now, we've talked about a lot of assets now. We've talked about current assets and we've talked about fixed assets. We also have to worry about what the appropriate mix of assets are. I think you can see that if we own fixed assets, we have a lot less flexibility with what we can do with them than if we own current assets. So a lot of firms try to avoid owning fixed assets. Well, how can we do that? Well, one possibility is don't make anything. Then we don't need any plant equipment. But if we don't make anything, how are we going to have anything to sell? Well, how about if we buy it from somebody else? And let them own the plant equipment. You see, effectively then, the only assets we would have would be current assets. We'd have inventories, the things we bought from that supplier. We'd have receivables, if we finance the sales to our, our customers. And we'd have cash, but we'd have no plant equipment. Now, of course, built into the price that that supplier is, is selling us the product for is his depreciation of plant equipment, but at least we don't have that investment. That's particularly attractive to new young companies that don't want to make a big investment, especially if they're not sure their, their great new product is going to work anyway. So we'll subcontract the manufacturer. Now, remember that I told you the appropriate answer to all questions it is that it depends. Most of the things we were talking about have indeed trade-offs built into them. Let's go back to the receivables item again for just a moment. How do we know how many days of receivables we should have on the books? Well, it reflects our policy with regard to credit to our customers. How long should we give them to pay us? Well, there are a couple reasonably good answers to that. I think they should pay us as soon as they turn our product into money, because if it's money, they could invest it and earn interest. And if they gave it to us, we could invest it and earn interest. So if we knew how long it took for the customer to take our product and convert it into cash, that would be a reasonable limit to how long we should extend credit to them. Well, how are we going to figure that out? Well, if we could get hold of his balance sheet and income statement, we could calculate the number of days of receivables he has on the books, by the formula we developed a minute ago. We could calculate the number of days of inventory he has on the books, again, using the same formula we use for XYZ. And the sum of those two, the days of inventory plus the days of receivables, indeed is the amount of time it takes him to take our product, move it through inventory, maybe he even does something to it along the way, work in process, sell it, and then collect the receivable. We call that his operating cycle. In fact, we have an operating cycle too. XYZ's operating cycle is 72 days, 36 days of inventory plus 36 days of receivables. Our customer may have a much shorter operating cycle. For example, if we were selling beef patties to McDonald's, that's a sell it or smell it product. It doesn't lie in inventory for very long. And when they sell it, they sell it for cash. So it doesn't take McDonald very long to turn a hamburg patty into money. And so even though they're a very good customer, we would expect prompt payment from a McDonald. And if we were selling to people like McDonald, we should have relatively few days of receivables on the books. On the other hand, let's go back to Macy's. We produce women's garments, and we're going to sell them to department stores. We know that the only way you can sell a garment is to have it on the rack at Macy's. And so, really, the answer to our inventory problem is to take all of our finished goods and ship them out to Macy's and stores like that as soon as possible to get them on the racks at the beginning of the, of the season. If they stock out, the dress will never get sold because most people want to buy their clothes early in the season while they're still in style. Well, that means, though, that Macy's is going to have to carry a lot of days of inventory. 
because at the beginning of the season, they've got a whole season's worth of dresses on the, on the rack. Further, when Macy's sells them to you, they generally let you use a credit card. Very typically, a Macy's credit card, if they can convince you to buy or to, to get one. And we can even figure out how long they give you to pay them. They bill you once a month, and then they usually they give you 30 days to pay after the bill arrives. Well, if you think about it, if somebody bills you once a month and gives you 30 days to pay, they should have 45 days of receivables in the books. You see why? If you bought the thing at the beginning of the month, it would be 30 days until they bill you, and then 30 days till you pay. That would mean it would be 60 days of receivables. But of course, if you were silly enough to buy the day before the billing cycle ended, you'd be billed the day after you purchased it, and only get 30 days to pay, so you'd only have 30 days of receivables on the books. On average, then, people buy on the 15th day of the month, and it's 15 days until the bill goes out, plus 30 days to collect, and so a Macy's ought to have about 45 days of receivables on the books. Well, if you add 45 days of receivables to up to 90 days of inventory, a whole season's worth, that means it's taking Macy's 135 days to turn our dress into money. We're clearly going to have to offer Macy's a lot of credit. That is, if we sell women's dresses, we're going to have to have a lot of days of receivables on the books, right? Now, let's get rid of the receivables. If we don't want to invest in receivables, there's a better answer. Let's sell them to somebody who likes to invest in them. We call this factoring. Most major banks have factoring operations, and so do several other large companies. General Electric is, I think, now the largest factoring company in the United States. A factor will simply buy your receivables from you at a discount. The discount is the profit that the factor will realize when he or she collects on that receivable. So if they buy the receivable before you, from you for $4 and collect $5, the dollar is what they made for taking the risk that they wouldn't collect. Now, this is a fairly efficient process if you think about it, because not all of our customers are as big as Macy's if we're a garment manufacturer. We may be selling to six or seven or 50 small boutiques. And this boutique over here may owe us very little money, and it's not really worth our time and effort to chase the owner to collect. But if we sell the paper, the receivables, from that boutique to, Macy, to uh, GE, and, we, and GE also buys the paper on that store from a number of other manufacturers, then Macy's has a very good reason to chase that owner and a very efficient way of collecting it. Namely, they'll throw that guy into bankruptcy if he doesn't pay. So factoring is a very efficient way of getting receivables off the books. Incidentally, we can factor with or without recourse. If we sell the receivables with recourse, that means if GE can't collect them, they give them back to us, we have to give them the money back, and it's our worry. If we sell it without recourse, then GE is buying it and it has to worry about collecting, and it's their tough luck if they don't collect it. Clearly, that's riskier, and GE would demand a bigger discount to buy without recourse than to buy with recourse. The result of factoring is that we knock a lot of receivables off the books, and so we have an even smaller investment. And more importantly, we get rid, in many cases, of the risk of trying to collect from that boutique owner who we can't really count on. Inventory is also a trade-off. More days of inventory increases our credibility with our customers about our ability to deliver. You know, it's now fashionable to demand just-in-time delivery. The Japanese taught us that lesson. Really, all that the customer is doing when he demands just-in-time delivery is insisting that we keep the inventory instead of him. He's foisting off the inventory problem on us instead of on himself.
If we maintain an inventory close at hand to his plant, he doesn't have to maintain an inventory. Well, if he demands just-in-time delivery and he depends upon it, he wants to be certain that the deliveries will be there. And the surest way that he can, can reach to find that certainty is to insist that we have a lot of inventory on hand, preferably in warehouses right next to his plant. So we do make a big investment in inventory, but at least we get that customer as a just-in-time customer. Well, that's as much as I have to say about assets at this time. In the next session, we're going to look at where the money came from to buy these assets.